thank you everybody for jumping in and joining for episode four of Journey to Sovereignty. Um, really excited to, to jump into this one. And there's been a lot of chatter lately on Twitter going back and forth about the benefits and trade-offs of secure elements. Um, but wanted a chance for us to, to dive into the topic in a more nuanced manner than 240 characters allow. Because uh, the, the downside of Twitter is that the nuance usually goes by the wayside. So we'll do a bit of a deeper dive into what secure elements are, what we use them for, and what benefits and trade-offs come with using them to help us secure our Bitcoin. As always, I'm joined by Bitcoin Q&A, Head of Customer Experience here at Foundation, and our CEO and co-founder, Zach Herbert. But for today, we're also joined by Ken, our CTO, uh, to jump in with some of his technical expertise on secure elements. How's it going, guys? Doing pretty well, Seth. Thank you. Pleasure to be on. You're yeah, going great. Awesome. Good to, good to have you all and good to have a little bit bigger crowd than normal here. Um, so one quick reminder before we get rolling, we will have Q&A time at the end, like always. So uh, for those of, you, those of you in the audience, um, definitely get those questions ready and we'll, we'll roll with those after. Um, so to start, we briefly touched on secure elements last week. Um, so I know that we've gotten into it a little bit, but I want to circle back to that for those who maybe missed that episode or to give us a chance to, to dive into it a little bit more. Um, but what's a secure element in the first place and, and what are they chiefly useful for? Yeah, I guess I can uh, kick us off and then see where everyone else wants to fill in the gaps. Um, secure element is really a dedicated chip that has... Uh, or that offers better security, <laughs> which sounds kind of obvious. Um, but the benefit of this is that in order to access uh, data that's stored on a secure element chip, it can be very, very difficult. They're, I mean, they're, they're designed to make it impossible to access any data on it without knowing you know, the en encryption key or, or a pin or something like that. Um, but in reality, what it just means, since no chip is perfect, is that it makes it very, very difficult uh, for an attacker to access data. The way I look at secure elements is that um, they offer uh, really great physical security uh, to a device. So if you have a device that uses a secure element, uh, you almost always would need some kind of physical access and more sophisticated um, approaches in order to you know, uh, break into the chip and pull off any, you know, private keys or any other important data that's stored on there. Yeah, I think uh, Zach sort of nailed the, the, the core use case there. Um, I think just to pad it out a little bit more, I guess, um, with, just to hone in on the sort of um, the specific nature of these chips and the, the fact that it's not sort of a you can't just sort of um, go in ahead and install your own kind of application or software on top of this. They have a very specific and narrow set of use cases uh, designed at storing and protecting um, specific types of data uh, under specific access requirements. So it's not like a, to be looked at as a traditional sort of uh, standard um, computer chip that you can kind of program or, or use at will. Uh, it's very focused and um, kind of like a bit of a one-trick pony that uh, has one purpose and that's to be super, super secure. I would actually add a little more nuance to that Q&A because I think what you said is how uh, we at Foundation use a secure element with Passport. And it's also how 
uh, Bitbox and cold card use secure elements, but it's not how Ledger does. So Ledger actually mm-hmm. runs an entire proprietary operating system on theirs. So I actually do think that the term secure element is kind of broad. It's it's kind of like a broad category of security chips. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another category that's kind of tangential called secure enclaves. And a secure enclave is what you'd find on like your you know, iPhone or your Pixel phone, for example, or, you know, later, more uh, current Android devices like from Samsung, where secure enclave is actually a secure part of the main processor. It's all on the same chip. And the secure element can be broadly defined as any kind of uh, chip that is tailored towards security. Um, Other examples of hardware wallets that actually run the whole operating system on the secure element are, I think, I think Keystone does the same thing. So even within the hardware wallet world, um, there's a lot of different ways that these chips are actually used. One small caveat to that is that uh, Google Pixels are actually the distinction there. So they're actually not secure enclaves, but they do have their own custom built secure element that's a completely separate processor, memory, everything um, from the main processor itself. Um, and that's one of the, the interesting things is that secure elements are obviously not invented for Bitcoin usage. Like they've, they've been made for other things and used in server processors and, and server processing and in, uh, in mobile phones for a long time. They're used for financial data and secrets by both Google and Apple. Um, so they're certainly not something that's new to, um, new to the space. Um, but they've been implemented in things like like pixels and, and in iPhones. Um, I think it's interesting to see that 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 this use case is broader than Bitcoin, and they're they're not something that's built specifically for Bitcoin keys, um, but they they are used by the by that for us in this space now. Yeah, this also uses in uh, payment and discarding, and uh, also they're used in supply chain to verify um, yeah. authenticity of certain components. Yeah, I think um, fun fact. But I'm I'm pretty sure the the 608 series that that we use and Bitbox and Cold Card also use um, is very popular in printer cartridges <laughs> uh, to make sure that the printer you know basically restricts restricts it to only being able to use like a properly um, you know a certified cartridge from the manufacturer because you can get secure elements that are more expensive that that run entire operating systems as we've noted but you can also get very cheap simple ones um like what we use and what some of the other hardware wallet manufacturers use and i believe during uh the supply chain crisis uh over the last uh couple years uh one of the at least one of the printer manufacturers like uh disabled the need for the secure element because it was impossible to get them. And so it, and, and they were able to still sell cartridges without them. Um, so just, just really interesting to think about how these little chips are actually uh, very broadly used, um, even in uh, you know, products that are more mundane. And as, as Ken said, uh, you know, there's definitely a pretty widespread uh, use case in, in supply chains and uh, supply chain integrity and, and that kind of stuff. It's, it's a little funny, though, that in that use case, they're sort of restricting your sovereignty, whereas in our case, we're trying to improve it. Yeah, and one of the, I think one of the important things with secure elements being not exclusively built and used for Bitcoin hardware wallets is that 
it lessens the risk of kind of a, a targeted attack. Because I think one of the the questions or concerns that I often get with secure elements is that people are concerned that this black box is storing private keys. And so then uh, a, a manufacturer will implement some sort of malicious backdoor into a secure element to get people's private keys. But these things are like, we are a very, very, very small percentage of the usage of secure elements worldwide. Um, so it's not something where like, if a manufacturer did that, they'd also be backdooring all of their large businesses that are using their devices. Uh, they'd, they'd be impacting a much larger swath of the space um, and putting their own reputation at risk to do that if they were specifically after Bitcoin private keys. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the things that's helpful to understand that it's not just Bitcoin hardware wallets, the secure elements. So there's a much broader uh, space there. I think you make a really good point, which is like, we're kind of a, we're, we're a small industry compared to the number of simple secure element chips that are sold per year. I mean, to put one in every printer cartridge, I mean, you're talking probably hundreds of millions uh, of these chips per year, if not billions. And our entire industry probably represents like, you know, a few million per year at the most. Um, they're very commodity uh, and they're very cheap or they can be very cheap. You know, so the one that we use in Passport costs like a dollar um, and that's in, you know, relatively small quantities compared to if you were like a, like HP buying like, you know, a hundred million of these uh, each year, I'm sure you would be able to get it down by the, the price down uh, significantly. So, um, I, and, I, and I think Seth will probably have a chance um, today to talk about all the different kinds of potential, you know, attack vectors and security risks and trade-offs um, when we, that, that we uh, consider when we, when we talk about secure elements. Yeah, for sure. And I think the the biggest one that often people are concerned with when we talk about secure elements is is the fact that they're a they're a black box, they're closed source. No one knows exactly how they work outside of what the, the manufacturer tells people who purchase them. Um and obviously our our team when we when we're building products and when we're building software, our focus is on open source software and hardware, free and open source software and hardware. Um so the this begs the obvious question, why do we then use a secure element that's that's closed source, that's a black box, and that's not as uh, not as knowable as as other systems out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can take a crack at this one first as well. Um, let's take a step back for a second and just think about all computer chips in general. You know, all computer chips are or at least all modern computer chips that we would use today and all our different electronic devices are essentially black boxes. Um, you get a data sheet and you're told on the data sheet, you know, how to interface with the chip and what the different features of the chip consist of, but there's no such thing today as a modern, you know, high performance, a fully open source computer chip. And so, yes, I mean, the secure elements are closed source, but so are the processors that we run, you know, our hardware wallet firmware on. Uh, those are also technically closed source. Um, I think the, the main difference is not really about open source or closed source. It's about, um, can I easily find out how to interface with this chip? And more specifically, like, do I need an NDA? Do I need to sign a non-disclosure agreement 
with the manufacturer of this chip in order to figure out how it works. And, you know, because the secure element world is a little bit more secretive, almost always the manufacturer makes you sign an NDA. And a lot of people, including us, don't like that, right? Because, you know, if you're buying a hardware wallet and you want to go around clicking through all the data sheets of all the parts and chips that are used in the device, like you should be able to do that without, you know, getting an NDA through the manufacturer. So the chip we use, the microchip 608 series does have uh, a data sheet that's publicly available. Um, I don't think it's the full data sheet, but it's like most of it. And so that was definitely a plus when we were looking at, you know, that uh, selection for the chip. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to note that pretty much all chips, whether they're, you know, secure elements or processors um, are basically closed source black boxes. Anything else y'all want to add Q and A or Ken there? I guess I would just say that like that, that also goes down to the, um, the chip level itself, where even if you had a chip design that was, you know, quote unquote open source, like if you take something like risk five, that's a, a, a step in the right direction, but there's manufacturers of those chips who also have their own intellectual property to build up their own chips. And those all sit on top of the fabs proprietary libraries as well. Uh, and so like, as of today, there's really no path toward a fully open source uh, chip really all the way down to the, you know, the chip level, unfortunately. Yeah, I, um, I touched on this uh, during uh, our last Twitter space, but I think the only, the only foundry or fab as it's called that offers a fully open source process right now is called Skywater uh, in collaboration with Google actually. And it's like a 135 nanometer chip process. And that's a, re a really old chip process. It's probably a couple decades old. <laughs> I mean, we're at like, you know, seven nanometers now, even even more cutting edge, five nanometers, three nanometers for uh, stuff like what's in your latest iPhone, a little bit older, like 28 nanometers for, you know, a chip you'd find in a hardware wallet. Um, so, I mean, you're looking at really old chip processes and they only just started doing uh, this more open source process at this foundry in collaboration with Google in the last, I think, like 18 months or so. And there's only been a handful of, of tape outs, which means like of production runs for, for these fully open source chips. So maybe like there's a direction there over time, uh, but definitely as of now, especially if you want to have like a, any kind of device that offers good performance, you're going to be using, you know, closed source chips. And, you know, that doesn't mean that, um, I mean, that that's kind of the state of how things are, but you, you can still uh, design your, hardware and software in a way that, you know, eliminates requiring, uh, eliminates putting all your trust into one chip. And so I'm sure we will talk a little bit more about today about, you know, how we do our uh, passport hardware architecture and and how we actually use, you know, this, this cure element uh, within passport. Yeah, I mean, that, that I think is the is the next thing I wanted to focus on, because if this is a black box and is something that's not not open source hardware and 
and not perfectly knowable what it does at the hardware level. Um, how do we go about minimizing the exposure to it while still gaining advantages from it? Because um, I think that's really the the crux of the issue here. Yeah, maybe I can start at like a higher level and then turn it over to Ken to talk a little bit more detail about the actual implementation. But basically, you know, we use our main processor, um, which is uh, made by ST Microelectronics, uh, to run our Passport firmware. And the firmware, you know, runs on the processor. The processor uh, is a very popular part. It has a data sheet that's publicly accessible and so on. And then when we're actually going to store the user's seed or the private key, um, it's not being stored in one place. It's actually being, there's, we have some data that's stored on the main processor. We have some other data that's stored on the secure element. And then we actually combine it together when you log in and you you know enter your pin in and so on and unlock the device. We combine that together in real time to give you uh, your seed. So we're not actually storing your seed on the secure element and we're not storing the seed on the main processor, which is pretty cool. Um, and then additionally, uh, when we go and we, when we generate your seed in the first place, um, we're actually not solely relying on the entropy generated by either chip. We actually have a, a separate, um, open source, um, you know, circuit on the board that helps, uh, called an avalanche noise source that gives a really good uh, source of entropy. So we're not relying on any black box component for that. So I'll turn over to Ken to kind of dive into some more of the details there. Yeah, just to, to touch a little further on that, we actually combine the avalanche noise source with random numbers from our random data from your element and from the MCU itself. So the MCU has a true random number generator as well. And we combine all those three sources together when we're generating the seed. But yeah, so the benefit of the architecture that Zach described earlier, where we have the two chips involved, is that um, if you if you were to pull off the secure element and try and you know attack it in isolation, the data you're going to get off there is not going to be useful to you. Um, you would also need to isolate the main processor and you know hack that to get the data off of that. Uh, and do so in a way where you know don't destroy anything in either of the chips, because the the combination of the two pieces of data is what allows us to uh, number one talk to the secure element. There's a what we call a pairing secret, which is used um, to securely connect to the secure element. And then, like you said, the the seed is actually not stored in the slot on the secure element, but by combining it with a one-time pad value that we store in the flash of the internal flash of the processor, we're able to recover the seed when we need to use it for signing. Yeah, and that, that combination of the three is, is really a, a powerful and important thing for people to understand, because it's not that we're trusting this black box with all of your data, or even just trusting it with your seed entirely. Um, so it really is making the most of the things that this hardware is good at, but not leaving it up to that specific manufacturer and that specific piece of hardware to control your private keys in their entirety. Um, so it's it's trying to find that best of both right. worlds. So, so for example, the supply chain attack did occur. Let's say there was a row 608 chip out there that could wirelessly transmit something. Uh, the data that it's transmitting would be useless to the receiver 
because they wouldn't have the one-time time value to make sense of that data. Yeah, exactly. And that's really important to note because one thing that I've seen on you know, Twitter and in the Bitcoin community over the last few months is a lot of FUD about secure elements and implications that you know, adding a secure element to your hardware wallet or that secure elements with hardware wallets uh, are for some, some reason like they, they reduce the security or you know, you're adding like closed source stuff to your hardware wallet or you know, they could be compromised in some way. And it's so important to realize that as Ken said, even if they were compromised in some way, it does not actually reduce the security you know, of your hardware wallet. If anything, it either is no net benefit or a really high net benefit. I would say there's no negative implication of adding a secure element like the way we do on Passport. And, you know, as we also mentioned, every chip is is a closed source black box today. And so you really are trusting uh, the chip to run your firmware. And so by breaking apart that trust and using multiple chips, uh, you're actually getting better security. Agreed there. Um, so we've touched a lot on kind of how we limit the downsides of secure elements, what they are, how they work. Um, but can we dive into a little bit more about what we're actually using them to protect against? So there, there are these downsides that we've talked about. We mitigate them, but but what are the benefits, the overwhelming benefits that, that we think that we get from using secure elements? Yeah, I can uh, jump in with the high-level stuff here and then let the guys uh, take over. Um, so th there's a couple of uh, common or commonly spoken about uh, attacks. Um, the first one we've touched on, which is um, essentially being able to extract the private key from your device. Um, so uh, having a secure element on your device uh, means that, um, like the guys have said earlier, that they're going to have to compromise uh, two different chips on the device. They're going to have to, number one, break into your house and grab hold of your device, which is already sort of a, a raises the bar significantly. Then they've got to open the device up without breaking anything and know what they're doing in terms of being able to um, access the specific chips uh, that we've been talking about um, and access, try to break the, 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 the structure of them to try and get the secrets out so that they can be combined to then subsequently finally get your private keys out of it. So this is a really, really advanced attack. And it's, you know, your common thief with a with a big wrench is not gonna be able to um, just turn up to your house and be able to get these secrets out. So devices with secure elements, um, you know, that's one of the primary use cases is, is preventing seed extraction for somebody that's got prolonged access to your device. Um, another one would be what's known as a pin replay attack, uh, which is essentially, um, Trying, your, trying to brute force the pin on the device to gain access to it over and over again. So we use, uh, I believe, our secure element to that has a counter on it to um, count down from 21 um, for the number of incorrect pin attempts. Uh, and after the 21st incorrect pin attempt, uh, the device will be bricked and it's useless to absolutely everybody. Uh, I'm sure there's some more finer details that Ken could probably um, add to that one. The, the final um, and more sort of uh, hyper-technical uh, 
theoretical attack that, that secure elements can protect against is something called side channel attacks, where um, somebody again needs physical access to the device um, and they use uh, sort of um, additional data from the device, such as power draw, um, or even, you know, going getting really into the weeds now where they kind of listen for certain frequencies when certain buttons are pressed, et cetera, to try and um, glean certain pieces of information um, that may help um, with these advanced attacks to gain an insight about sort of the mechanisms within the device. Um, so those are the three uh, kind of main ones that, that I'm sort of aware of and that are spoken about frequently. Yeah, so for, for Passport, you know, we configure the secure element slots. Um, you, we talked a bit about this earlier, but this isn't a fully programmable device. Um, it has sort of its set of things that it's able to do, but it does have some ability to reconfigure it to suit, um, you know, how you want to use it. And one of the features it has is this monotonically increasing counter, which means basically it's a counter that can only go up. And we use that uh, in combination with another slot that has like a number of pin attempts to ensure that, you know, you can't have more than, I think it's 21 uh, login attempts without essentially bricking the device. And the, re the way that works is that uh, if this counter ever reaches this match count, uh, you know, essentially that you've reached 21 attempts, then the, the slot that is needed to access um, to just basically generate the secret to, to read the seed is not available anymore. And so the chip will not let the MCU even uh, read the secret out or even for that matter, uh, check if the, the pin is valid anymore. Uh, and so that's at a hardware level that that's restricted. And that's one of the reasons today that if you do enter your pin too many times incorrectly, uh, the device is essentially, you know, tell, tell you that it's bricked. And that's that's for your security, right? Like that means that no matter what anyone does, you know they're not going to be able to to access your seed um, past twenty one attempts. Uh, then, another thing I just go. thought of, Ken, is this, the supply chain protection stuff. I don't think we mentioned that as one of the benefits. So I think that's something <laughs> that is one. Not many hardware wallets offer the supply chain uh, validation. Can you talk a little bit more about how we do that and sure. how we use the secure element for that? Yeah, so when you pull your passport out of the box, one of the processes that we take you through is a supply chain validation. Uh, and the way that works is there's um, an HMAC, this hardware message authentication code. Uh, basically, we have a key that's stored inside the secure element, which is not readable and it's not writable. But at configuration time, we're able to, to install that key in there. And then the secure element is able to receive a challenge, which is essentially just some random message. And it performs a hash, I said hardware earlier, it's hashed message authentication code. Um, it's able to uh, perform a hash inside the secure element and generate the, the response to the challenge. And that challenge is issued by uh, our server. Um, and then when we res respond with the response data, we know that the device that responded had access to that supply chain private key. And essentially, there's no other way to know that value except for there to have been a passport that was configured at our factory, um, which was able to respond with that challenge. And furthermore, we also do some you know, validation that the message came from our server because the challenge is also signed with a private key. And the passport firmware has the public key for that to validate that the signature comes from our server. So the combination of the signed request 
and the challenge and response, which can only be um, completed by the secure element, is what we're using to, to prove that you know the secure element has not been modified in transit, essentially. Two more quick questions around how we use the secure element. Um, I think one use case that we didn't mention yet is um, is the boot count, which is more of an advanced feature, but is, is something that's available for you mm -hmm. to be able to see how many times the device is booted before yeah. you actually enter yeah. your pin to make sure that nobody slips you a new device that they have malicious firmware on or, or something like that to try to to try to get your pen and then steal funds later from the real device. Um, that's done right. with the secure element right. as well, right? It, yeah, so essentially um, this boot counter is just a number that um, you know increases every time you turn the device on. So if you were you know, being targeted by a quote-unquote evil mate attack and you're, you've got somebody who keeps turning the device on and trying it out, uh, you would see that that boot counter would is, was increasing over time. And so we don't do anything actively to prevent the device from being used, um, but we do have the ability for you to check that value out anytime you want um, when you turn on the device. Um, and you can see like, oh, it's seven now, but I have it's been in a drawer for a year, and it was seven, and I turned it on and now it's 12. Like, what the heck, somebody's been touching this thing. I think right now we only expose that through the bootloader. Uh, there's a, a key you press during boot, which will take you into the uh, into a screen in the bootloader. And so this is even before the main firmware gets a chance to run. We query the secure element for the boot counter and um, show it to you. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a lot of different pieces involved for how we can leverage secure elements to to bring security in a broad sense um, with something like Passport. Um, but if we look at other hardware wallets that don't leverage secure elements, what are the what are the benefits that they gain by not using secure elements, and what risks do you see when you consider the different approaches that they're taking? Um, just before we get to that, one thing I just remembered we didn't talk about was that <clears throat> we do use the secure elements as well as part of our firmware update mechanism. Um, and part of, you know, green, the, there's the, the red and blue light at the top of Passport. And we're using the, uh, the secure element as far as, as a mechanism for proving that the firmware is properly signed and that it has not been modified uh, since the last time the device was booted. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll come in on your previous point, uh, Seth, about other other hardware wallets and the benefits uh, or the drawbacks of um, the approaches that other manufacturers have taken of, around not including um, a secure element. So, a couple that uh, spring to mind would be uh, Trezor, Seed Signer, and I believe Blockstream Jade as well. Um, all operate uh, without a seed without a um, secure element. So, um, I think um, I think. One of the, don't want to speak for these companies, and I'm not, not here to, to kind of bash them. They've all uh, you know made these choices uh, based on their own merits. Um, but I know that the Trezor guys are quite open about the fact that they uh, didn't include one into their device to uh, ensure that everything, um, you know, the device is, is completely uh, open source and everything on the device is open source, including uh, the chips or lack of a secure element uh, for that matter. 
Seed Signer takes a different approach where um, they do not store the seed on the device. Um, they, they run on general purpose hardware, namely a Raspberry Pi Zero, I believe. Um, so where that the user has to load the seed into the device every time that they use it, which um, is a benefit from the point of view that if somebody was to gain access to uh, the seed signer device and there's no seed on it then there's nothing to steal there's no secret and there's no bitcoin there to be stolen uh, the fallback from that is that if this is a device that you want to use um, even remotely somewhat frequently then having your seed close by somewhere you know somewhat insecure in your house might be a bit of an attack vector um, because if it, especially if it's stored in in plain text, somebody who can easily grab hold of that seed uh, and run off with your Bitcoin doesn't matter whether or not it's stored on a device or not. They've got your plain text seed, so they can access everything else. Um, and Blockstream J takes a, a slightly different, unique approach where um, they, I think, they do store the seed on the device, but they also to sign any transactions, they also interface with a, I think what they call a remote pin server, uh, which by default is uh, run by Blockstream, but I believe you can run your own as well. So it acts like a quasi two of two multi-sig where you need some remote party, uh, whether you host that yourself or that's Blockstream to sign off on any uh, additional transactions. So they gain um, some of the security or lack of security lost from, you know, not having a secure element on there and somebody gaining access, physical access to your device. Um, they mitigate that somewhat by having a remote pin server. Obviously, the downside of that is that if the remote pin server is down, then you're going to have a really pretty hard time uh, signing for your transactions. So lots of different approaches, and I'm sure we're going to see uh, plenty more coming out uh, in the years to come as well as people try and tackle this um, self-custody um, battle uh, in, in their own different ways and taking many different trade-offs uh, along the way as well. Yeah, I think that was a really good summary Q&A. I'm pretty biased, but I think that uh, if you don't have a secure element in your hardware wallet, it's just all cons. Mm. Um, you know, you lose the physical security, right? As you mentioned, it's pretty common knowledge that if you use a Trezor uh, and, you, and you do not use a strong passphrase, then your device is susceptible to just someone stealing it and you know, taking about 15 minutes, about $100 worth of hardware and, um, you know, breaking into the device and uh, extracting your seed. Uh, yeah, so Trezor key, says, key you word, know. Keyword strong passphrase. Yes, yes. It's, like not not like HODL. You've made that mistake before I think you mentioned, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, back when I first used a Trezor many years ago, I thought I was really cool keeping some coins on like a passphrase called HODL or something like that, you know, and. Uh, that that's great to segment coins or plausible deniability, but if someone steals your device, I mean that could be trivially brute force. So you'd have to have like you know use a password manager or choose six you know seed words at random or something like that if you really want to have a a strong passphrase. So like Trezor, you have to do that. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Kuna, I think I think you summed up kind of the the cons of Seed Signer pretty well, where. You know, unless you're using it because you're keeping a seed in metal in like a safety deposit box or a vault or something somewhere, you know, if you keep your seed right next to your device, like then anyone could just find that seed, you know, and, and enter it in or scan the QR code of it. And then they have your seed. So, um, you know, it's a really cool project, but I don't think it gives you any kind of physical, you know, security. Um, and then, like you said, with, with Jade, 
uh, from Blockstream, like it has to connect to a remote pin server if you want any kind of protection against pin brute forcing efforts. And so, you know, by adding a secure element into a hardware wallet, you give it really good physical security. Now, of course, all these hardware wallets we mentioned give you good security against remote attackers, right? Against someone, you know, hacking your computer or something like that, um, because it gives you that secondary screen and a way to verify the transaction from a secondary device. So all of these devices protect against these more remote, you know, software uh, based uh, attacks or hacks. Um, but if you're worried about someone coming, you know, and physically, you know, stealing your hardware wallet if, or, or something like that, or uh, whether it's someone you know, or someone who robs your house, or whether it's targeted or so on, you really do need a secure element to give you that kind of physical uh, protection to give you the ability to rate limit pin attempts, and to make it so that if they do steal your device, the only way to try to get your seat off of it is to take it to, you know, a lab based setting, use more sophisticated things like laser attacks and whatnot on expensive equipment that have a high likelihood of actually destroying the chip, um, probably a higher likelihood of destroying the chip than of actually extracting, you know, any usable data off of it. Yeah, I think that was a, a great overview of of the things going on with with other approaches. Um, and the one thing I would say for seed signer is one of the reasons there's not a secure element included there is that wouldn't be a part that's easy for. It's not commodity hardware, so there is a, a another good reason for why they don't include a secure element. But again, important to to understand um, some of the cons that go with that. And just want to reiterate, we're not here to to bash the other approaches. There are reasons that that these companies have chosen to to take different approaches, or these projects have taken different approaches. But um, important to again approach with nuance and, and understand the the pros and the cons of of each approach here. Um, the last question for you before we wrap up this segment is. It's just, why do you think that there is this recent increase in, in FUD against secure elements um, and against their their usage in hardware wallets recently in the, the Bitcoin space? I feel like there's always something to fight about, especially in, in bear markets on Bitcoin Twitter, but it seems like there's been kind of a concerted effort across the space uh, to speak out against secure elements. So I'd love to get y'all's thoughts on kind of why you think that is. I think, uh, yeah, obviously we're talking about Bitcoin Twitter here. So there's there's clearly a, a tribal uh, aspect to all of this where um, people tend to align uh, with with different projects. Um, you know, they, they see uh, the value in a specific project and the, the, they like the, the trade-offs that the project uh, they're involved with or that they have uh, grown fond of. Um, they, they're okay with the trade-offs that they're making. Um, and, you know, it's human nature to slowly you know the more time you spend time with people or a project or something like that to to align yourself more and more to that and to um kind of get the blinkers on i guess if you like and get a little bit one track minded um where you think that all of the approaches uh, are bad for you know reason x um so i think it's worth uh, um you know taking a step back from time to time and you know having conversations like this where we talk about the different approaches and and understand that Every you know, no approach is absolutely perfect. Uh, every single approach makes uh, lots of different trade offs. Um, so uh, it's it's about, especially with Bitcoin security, it's about making uh, a decision for your 
uh, your Bitcoin security approach that is uh, personal to you. You know, what, what works for me might not work for somebody else listening to this based on their, their technical abilities or their, their uh, access to secure locations or their technical abilities to, you know, operate different devices, etc. So definitely no one size fits all. And I think um, the, the attitudes um, or differing approaches um, and thought processes are just uh, part of the tribal nature of uh, Bitcoin. Um, you know, we're all super passionate about what we really like. And sometimes that spills over and uh, people like to share their opinions. Yeah, it's a, a difficulty there where people assume that what's good for them must be good for everybody. And then they just, you know, spout off about how all of their approaches are bad because of it. Uh, there, there are obviously we talked about there being trade-offs between Trezor and Seedsider and Jade and Passport and, and all of them. Uh, and you know, you're going to have to look at your situation to decide which trade-offs make sense for you. Like we think the trade-offs we're making for Passport are probably really good for a, a large number of people, um, and that's why we made them. That's why we started the company. Yeah, totally. I th I think there's a couple of reasons maybe just to add to what uh, you both said. Mm -hmm. One is I think Ledger has given the space a pretty bad reputation in terms of using secure elements or how they use it specifically. Because the way they use it, they, as I alluded to in the beginning of the conversation, is that they run an entirely proprietary closed source uh, security-oriented operating system called Bolos um, on the secure element. And so no one knows how that works. It's like a complete black box. And so I think when you think, oh, hardware wallet, the secure element, I think often you're thinking ledger. And I think it may have been one of the reasons why Trezor ended up moving in a anti-secure element direction is because at one point in time, it was really only ledger or Trezor. So you had the one company that was proprietary closed source and you had the one other, the other company that was more like, uh, you know, fully open source. And so I think you have like those, those are like the very black and white approach. And now you have a lot of nuance. And I think, unfortunately, the nuance uh, gets lost on places like Twitter. Um, and I also think there's a lack of, uh, a lot of the people talking about this on Twitter uh, have shown that they don't have a full understanding of how chips are made. Um, I mean, I keep seeing, you know, secure elements are closed source and so like don't use them. But as we've talked about, every chip is closed source. So what are you not supposed to use a processor? A Raspberry Pi is, is, uh, has closed source hardware. To boot a Raspberry Pi, you're actually uh, typically using like binary blobs um, of uh, firmware associated with some of the components on the circuit board. And Raspberry Pi OS is open source, but the actual circuit board schematics and all that kind of stuff are, are closed. And so there's so much nuance here. And I think that all that nuance is, is getting lost, unfortunately, in the quick, you know, back and forth spats uh, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, I, I heavily agree. I think the, that combination of the lack of nuance and just Twitter's format natively leads to a lot of one-size-fits-all claims. And I mean, just one of the biggest things that we see happen in the security space and the privacy space and the Bitcoin space is whatever is best for me must be the best for everyone, like Ken said. And I think that's that's one of my pet peeves in, in all of those and something that I've run into a lot in the privacy space specifically is 
whatever my threat model is, that means that that is a threat model that everyone else should have and everyone else should look at. Um, and so I'm going to fight for everyone to follow my threat model. Uh, and that, that I think is a, it's a very detrimental view and it's one that causes a lot of harm. Um, so people understanding that threat modeling as a, a whole is something that's very personal. Looking at how you want to secure your Bitcoin is something that's very personal, depending on how much you have, what you care about. Um, it, it is definitely something where no one else can really prescribe for you. Obviously people can help you to find out what will fit your use case well. Um, but uh, it's not something that um, that is really one size fits all like y'all y'all hit 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 on there. So I think that that is another key piece here. Thanks for jumping in for this episode of Journey to Sovereignty. And I hope you'll join us for our next live Twitter space every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. GMT. Joining us live gives you a chance to listen in, participate, and get your questions answered on the spot. Follow us at FoundationDVCS on Twitter to keep up with the latest news, get notifications when we go live, and much more. See you at the next one, and thanks for joining us on the Journey to Sovereignty.